Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we are joined again today by Whitney Webb, who has been on a rampage of interviews for her two new books. It's actually one, but it was uh, split into two. Uh, one Nation Under Blackmail. We've interviewed her for that before, and we'll discuss some of the experiences she's had in the last few weeks since the book has been published. And we're going to talk about some really interesting components of censorship and how this dovetails on what she's already written. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Whitney. Thank you. It's always my pleasure to be here. Yeah. So you were on a whirlwind tour. You went back to the U.S. in the first time in what, five, six, seven years? No, more. I think it was eight years. Okay. Wow. Something in that ballpark. A long mm-hmm. time. A long time. You got to get back in the United States and you spoke at Children's Health Defense, gave a, mm-hmm. a magnificent 15-minute speech there that was widely circulated. And uh, great job on that, by the way. Thank you. Uh, uh, and then you also, <laughs> we were talking before we went on about at least, it seems to me, about two dozen interviews or more. Uh, the most popular, which seems to have been Glenn Beck, but you're also on Patrick Bet David. Uh, and uh, so why, why don't you tell us how, how that experience went and how the book is doing? Uh, well, as far as numbers go with the book, I haven't really, uh, I'd have to ask the publisher uh, okay. about exactly how, you know, how that's going, because I haven't really uh, paid much attention to that, because, of course, I had to put everything, so many things on the back burner as I was finishing the book and and doing early promotion for it and, and all of that. So I haven't really uh, checked with him to see, I probably should have. But anyway, the U.S., you know, uh, as someone who's been out for a very long time, obviously, the U.S. has changed a lot in the past decade or so. Uh, since I was back there and, you know, what, was, what, what have you noticed the most? Cause eight years is a long time to be away. So maybe it seems odd to people. So I, I, you know, I guess I'd have to think more about my, uh, you know, all the different observations and all the things that were different, I suppose. But one thing that did stand out to me, I noticed, so um, my, I have a four-year-old, so I wanted to take her trick-or-treating in the neighborhood where I used to trick-or-treat where I was a kid, right? And we went and almost everyone in this neighborhood had like those uh, Google, I guess it's Nest or something, the the like camera <laughs> doorbells and so we weren't sure how to like ring the doorbells you know and we were like are they watching us (laughs) from the outside um which is actually kind of troubling you know because a lot of those um you know tech companies google including them right um are contractors for the military and for intelligence and they most likely i mean i think it would be naive to assume they don't have backdoor access to those devices knowing when you're home and when you're not and all of that so you know i i think it's interesting the willingness of of so many people so many households to invite that type of technology into their homes i guess you know i didn't see inside people's homes really so much But, you know, a lot of people, as I understand it, in the U.S. have things like Alexa, like Amazon's Alexa that, you know, there's been numerous stories that have come out that they're like recording you with without your consent, even though they say they're not and all sorts of things like that. Uh, But people still continue to use the product. And, you know, I I really wish people would would wise up (laughs) about that type inviting that type of technology 
into your yeah. into your house because it's being marketed as as convenience like so much of what we're being sold today is being marketed as convenience but really a lot of it as you know you and I and other people um have talked about is really just sort of the building blocks for the infrastructure of a, a very dangerous and orwellian system of control yeah and the surveillance state is they're capturing the data and yes. I think Google has, mm-hmm. Google has an equivalent of nest I'm pretty sure uh not nest of uh, Alexa but they they bought the thermos. I I purchased the the Nest thermostat because it was the first smart thermostat that came out in 2012, 10 years ago now, maybe it was 2011. But you couldn't get them; they were a really hot item. And then at that time, they weren't surveillance because they were an independent company. I think it was developed by the Tony Tony. I forget his last name, but he's the guy that invented the iPod. And uh, then Google bought him and. And they they've got a microphone in there, so they're they're listening to everything, recording it and capturing it, and using it to to mind control. So well, that's, this is an interesting segue, but I want to still hear your other observations because uh, what we want to talk about is the surveillance state and the censorship and all of that that you've really accumulated a lot of information on, especially when you were working that that mint print new print mint print press news that you were working at is I just uh, discovered them recently, but boy, they do a lot of good work on uncovering this stuff. Yeah, it's always been really, uh, even when I worked there, well, a lot of my work there was focused on the intersection of intelligence and Silicon Valley. So even after I I sort of left and started to do my own thing, I sort of, you know, maintained a lot of that, a lot of that focus as well, because I mean, it is very important. And, um, you know, I guess if uh, I could say a theme of my work would be, you know, interrogating power and the structure Mm -hmm. of power and how it really works. I mean, if you're looking at Silicon Valley today, it's very clear that it's essentially fused with the national security state. So if you want to talk about the national security state today, it's almost impossible to not mention Silicon Valley with that. And so I think a major theme of my work over the years has been how those two worlds are essentially fused um, at this point and the implications of that. And one thing we've seen particularly uh, happened particularly intensely, uh, sp- uh, specifically during the the COVID era uh, or whatnot, is that big pharma is now getting in this mix. There's a lot of merging happening between big pharma and Silicon Valley. And so you're seeing this with a lot of joint ventures into the healthcare space, quote unquote, healthcare space of Silicon Valley companies. A lot of it's through wearables or some of these efforts to um, normalize Uh, technology like CRISPR um, or nanotechnology injectables and all of this stuff. You're seeing them all come together. And and a lot of these uh, joint ventures or companies in this particular space that's spanning big pharma uh, in Silicon Valley, they tend to have a lot of funding from uh, groups like NQTEL, which of course is the CIA's venture capital uh, arm. So I think we're seeing sort of you know, uh, in in the in the effort to sort of push through this technocratic transhumanist system, you're going to see a lot more overlap between that particular um, power structure of national security state in Silicon Valley with big pharma, um, and that's a uh, very very bad. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that. It's it's awful. Uh, so I think more people should be paying a lot more uh, attention uh, to that specifically. You mentioned the big pharma and. Uh course that is really closely tied to Rockefeller and in 112 years ago now when they, he uh, catalyzed the production of the uh, Flexner report which really eliminated almost all natural medicine it's gone out of the curriculum but the reason I mentioned this is that it appears largely thanks to Rockefeller again a century later that they're reintroducing 
food into the medicine component because likely they're going to be implementing controls in the food supply that they want to continue their further, uh, I guess, monopoly of the, of the population. Have you have been reading about that? Well, what concerns me, right, is that like there's a lot of efforts to monopolize the food supply. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of talk about like Bill Gates becoming the largest landowner and corporate mm-hmm. control um, <clears throat> over the food system. And at the same time, you're having a lot of promotion of transgenic technologies or you know, GMO stuff. And this idea, for example, I think it's also funded by Bill Gates, this idea of putting quote unquote vaccines in your food, like in tomatoes. So eating one of these GMO tomatoes is the equivalent of taking a vaccine and stuff like that. So if these people take over the food supply, they'll be framing it as a return to food as medicine, right? But it's not, you know, it, it's a very inverted uh way well it's not exactly food as medicine as people would think of it like when someone like you like uh, Hippocrat- talks about that Hippocrates concept talked about Hippocrates yeah. That up. yeah yeah so it's taking this like age-old uh you know very old uh you know adage right and then sort mm-hmm. of twisting it to fit their purposes so they'll you know it, it's only food as medicine is only convenient to them when it's not something that actually heals you it's something that keeps <laughs> you in this new system they're creating right so you've been investigating this for quite some time now, and I'm wondering if you've come to a conclusion as to a time frame as to, and maybe projections as to what we might expect, because we're in a lull right now as we record this uh, between the, before Christmas, and it looks like, you know, it's quiet but that that this is this is clearly probably from my view the eye of the hurricane it's just going to get worse and i'm just wondering what your insights would be as to the timing and what to anticipate so i think there's a couple things to watch really closely in the next year one is how uh, this world health organization pandemic treaty oh, that yes. tries to go on top of the constitution um not just of the us but pretty much every country like that world, would sign yeah. it yeah so i think that's definitely something to put, uh play closely uh, close attention to because if that uh does get passed i think it's likely we'll see an effort to repeat a lot of what we saw during covid-19 from these particular uh, groups. And if it's not signed, I think they're going to wait to try and redo all of that. What we saw over the last two years, they're waiting to get that type of new authority. So they don't have to deal with so much dissent, whether it's from nation states or from particular domestic populations that have had enough and are mm-hmm. unlikely to believe uh, all of this a second time. Uh, I think they're really counting on having that World Health Organization like supranational authority in order to go forward with the biosecurity agenda in terms of what we saw in in terms of a repeat of what we saw in recent years. Um, The other thing that I think is really important is the CBDC agenda Mm -hmm. or the central bank digital currency agenda. So almost every country in the world at this point, uh, there are exceptions, right? But uh, um, I think it's a majority have some sort of CBDC pilot program going on right now in some capacity. And now in the US, uh, they've even announced that they're doing pilots of that with commercial banks like JP Morgan and some of the big financial giants of Wall Street. 
And so I would say that either 2023 or 2024 is likely to be the year of the CBDC. Um, they're in countries where they've already launched a CBDC or have a very advanced pilot program. It's framed first as voluntary. And then, of course, once enough people start using it, it becomes the only form of legal tender or money um, in use. At least that's the end game for mm-hmm. CBDCs in any particular country. And for people that don't know about central bank digital currencies, it's basically programmable money. So the central bank will decide when you spend your money. Uh, so you can't save when you want uh, because the money, at least in some of these CBDC pilot programs comes with the money comes like an expiration date. You have to spend it before that date or it's worthless. So you don't decide uh, when you spend your money, the state does. Right. That's very complicated. And that's just one example. So they've talked about being able to use it to program stuff like they decide that uh, you can't eat a particular type of food because of, you know, it's either bad for your health or bad for climate uh, or whatever. And then your money won't be good to buy that particular product or if they, you know, declare a lockdown. For example, and you're not allowed to go, I don't know, beyond uh, five miles beyond your home or something by that, your money won't work five miles beyond your home. So that's basically why central bank digital currencies are attractive to the powers that be. Uh, But they're going to frame it as voluntary first before it moves into involuntary. So I think that first voluntary phase is going to become much more uh, commonplace in different countries. We're going to see it pop up in a lot more countries over the next two years. And obviously, um, that is the phase to mass reject CBDCs in any way you can, because the more steps you take down this path, uh, I guess I'll go back to COVID for a second to sort of explain where I'm trying to go here. Mm -hmm. I understand and have empathy for people in COVID-19 that didn't want to lose their jobs and and were worried about being thrown into a position of poverty that have families. And so they took the vaccine because of the mandates, right? But the more steps you take down that path of it's convenient, you know, it, the harder it will be to go on the alternative path later on. So for people that were in that situation with COVID-19, that should have been a huge wake up call, you know, to start doing something different and think about how to get off that path. Because, you know, if you went down that path and then go down the CBDC path just because, well, it's more convenient for now, there's going to come a point where if you make enough compromises in that way, it's going to be almost impossible, if not entirely impossible, to redirect and go towards a different uh, outcome, right? So I mm-hmm. think th- these are things that are very important for people to pay attention to right now in terms of developments and plan, um, you know, how to keep your family uh, independent of these type of systems and and resilient in the face of all the shocks uh, to the system that we already see coming because it's, you know, in, on all sorts of different fronts, I think particularly uh, this winter, at least in the, in the Northern Hemisphere uh, winter, there's a lot uh, of squeezes on uh, food and specifically energy right now, right? So I think, uh, you know, the more squeezes we see, the more they're going to try and force people uh, into CBDCs. It, they've already pretty much said the main way they're going to try to force mass adoption of CBDC is through programs uh, like uh, for the poor, uh, like uh, food stamps and things like that. So if you're in a food and energy squeeze, more people are going to be forced onto those systems. And if they're only going to pay you, pay you, <clears throat> or a stimulus check if they do lockdowns again or an attempt to or something like that, that is going to be paid out in the CBDC in the future. So people have to be cognizant of that. And But it, it's a very insidious plan, right? You're trying to reduce the standard of living of people. And then in order for them to sort of maintain their standard of living, you're forcing them to adopt basically what's a, a, a control system disguised as a monetary system. 
All right, so I, I appreciate you highlighting that and, and helping us understand it in greater depth, but your implications are that we likely will have some choice in the matter. And I, I'm skeptical at that. first, but I don't think at later first, on. Yeah. I think it's, it seems to me it's in that. <clears throat> I just don't know that there's any way that this isn't going to be implemented, no matter how many people. No, I think it, it, sorry, maybe I, I, I didn't phrase it right. What I meant yeah, well, is I, at first they're going to try and frame it as voluntary before it becomes yeah. involuntary. Yeah. And so that s- stage where it's voluntary is when it's critical for people like us to act. Right. But but even if we act in, 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 in large numbers, do you think that we can prevent them from implementing it or just delay them? I don't think we can prevent them from implementing it, but you can you can prevent yourself and your family and your community from adopting that system and use a, a parallel economic system. So they've talked about, you know, some people, for example, have talked about using Bitcoin, right? But there's a possibility mm-hmm. the government could make Bitcoin illegal. Yes, so we see what, what, can, what happened what can with they, the FTX scandal just recently. Yeah. So what can they not make illegal? Trade and barter, things like that. I yeah. mean, there's definitely uh, types of economic activity that the federal government can try and regulate. <laughs> but there's some things that are very difficult for them to make illegal trade making the, you know, having Craigslist or trade and barter become illegal. I see is very not feasible for the federal government to try and step in and, and do virtually impossible. I would think. Right. So we have to, we have to think about these sort of things when countering the CBDC agenda. I like um, that. And that voluntary stage is, is, is the time to make those plans. So you don't get swept up when it moves from voluntary to involuntary, which they are definitely going to do at some point or attempt to do. And it's, it will only be successful if there's mass adoption. So the more people who opt out and do some sort of parallel system for their economic activity at the neighborhood or community level, uh, the more people that don't adopt the CBDC, the less successful that agenda will be. Yeah, so that, that's words of wisdom for sure. I mean, we need to resist this, but a lot, a lot, not just resisting it. We have to develop parallel systems, as you suggested, and mm-hmm. and a good community where you know your neighbors and your resources, and you know you can, can contribute as a whole and and support each other. Otherwise, <laughs> it is a dystopian future we're looking at. It seems. Yeah, it, well, it can seem that way, but I mean, there's reasons to be optimistic. Uh, so well, I think give more us people, the, give us the reasons. Give us the reasons. Well, I think more people than ever are getting wise to this type of agenda and are hungry for explanations about what's really going on because I think a lot of people on a visceral level know something is really wrong, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's why you know what we're going to talk about later today. There's so many efforts to censor that type of information, and I also think in addition to that, there is a major investment by the state in efforts to make us think like we are a minority when we are not. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of efforts, you know, I think even more uh, than anything else, what social media is used for uh, by the powers that be is to make us think certain ideas are more popular than they really are. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of, you know, when you talk about like the bot situation on Twitter, right, which came up a lot when Elon Musk was playing around with buying the company or not. Um, I think a lot of those bots serve to sort of promote ideas that many people don't necessarily have or make certain figures look more or ideas look more popular popular than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you combine that with the censorship and trying to remove ideas that otherwise would be popular with real authentic accounts, you remove that and then have a particular phony idea and have it heavily promoted by bots that looks like at the authentic engagement, you're manipulating people's perception of how the rest of the country feels. Yeah. And this, right. 
Mis- and I think a lot of people forget that angle of it. So there's a very big effort to make us think that we're more of a minority than we really are at this point. So mm-hmm. who are the powers behind this operation? Is this the intelligence agencies or is it, uh, for that? censorship? Uh, I mean, well, so- or then changing, changing the narrative and our perspective of the reality. Well, I think it, first of all, will depend on what, what particular narrative they're trying to counter and or yeah. promote. So yeah. when it comes to, you know, uh, narratives about COVID-19 or uh, denying that early treatments exist and promoting the vaccine and all of that, I think a lot of the work that you've done and other people have done over the past couple of years really shows what interests, you know, are favored there. And it might be similar or over overlapping interests or maybe even competing interests, who knows, depending on what particular agenda you're talking about. Uh, but more often than not, a lot of these agendas uh, in terms of like technocracy, biosecurity and things like that. Yeah, you definitely do have some sort of national security state uh, involvement there at the end of the day. But we have to keep in mind, too, that a lot of these intelligence agencies, even even from their inception, um, have really been sort of instruments of uh, the entrenched oligarchy in the u.s and you know that's probably true for intelligence agencies in other countries as well mm-hmm. yeah so uh, we wanted to uh, also dive into the censorship that is allowing this propaganda and brainwashing to occur because if you silence the voices then it seems more one-sided so maybe we can jump into that for a moment Yeah, sure. Oh, you know, there's a lot to say about the censorship uh, agenda. So you mentioned earlier that I gave a speech at Children's Health Defense, well, their inaugural conference uh, at Mm -hmm. the end of October. And what my speech was about was how really the censorship agenda is a war on dissent. Um, And also, you know, by it's not just a war on, you know, uh, it's it it was more framed about journalism, uh, dissenting journalism, but really it's a war on public dissent in general, because it's not just, you know, independent journalists who are being censored. It's just regular people, regular accounts, you know, aren't allowed to say certain things and what they're trying to do. I mean, we've seen that it's a lot more obvious perhaps in the UK where things have been written about this particular, I think they call it the nudge unit. Um, these efforts to sort of alter our behavior by altering our perception. And so a lot of what's going on right now on social media, and as I mentioned earlier, censorship is a big part of this, is to uh, completely change how we perceive a particular situation or agenda and with the hopes from them, the powers that be, that that change in perception will cause a change in behavior. Right. So if you're censoring an idea, you're trying to take it out of the public mind um, and have it just not be part of the discourse anymore. And in doing so, that, you know, obviously causes a change in, in perception because you're only having really one idea or a very small spectrum of opinion about a particular idea um, <clears throat> being out there. And that's all people are going to start engaging with if you censor all the Um, other takes, I guess you could say. And so the idea of that is to completely wipe out dissent so that everyone has a rather homogenous perception of events and people and ideas and agendas. And then from there, assume that behavior will be easily molded uh, to the benefit of these particular powers. Now, have you been banned from Twitter? Uh, No, not yet. And it consistently surprises me that I haven't. But I think part of it is because I just don't tweet. I just don't tweet that much. So more often than not, I'll like share an article. I'll share Mm -hmm. like an article that like we publish at Unlimited Hangout or I publish on my Mm -hmm. site. And, you know, that'll be it. I don't really do so much uh, back and forth or commenting on on issues. I'm rather inactive in in that sense. 
Because so, honestly, for me, well, I think people may be familiar with this aspect of social media, like Facebook, for example, was caught mm -hmm. psychologically manipulating people mm -hmm. by trying to make them feel more negatively by manipulating what's in their news newsfeed. So for me, like social media does have that effect on me if I use it too much. It's like not that I don't want to engage with people on social media, uh, but it tends to either distract me from the work I'm doing and I'm less productive, or it tends to make me feel like crap. <laughs> uh, and not necessarily because of, of like real people trying to engage with me or like valid criticisms or anything like that, but they, they rig it. So it's making you feel that way. Right. And there's been studies done too on how social media has gravely negatively impacted some of the youngest generations, particularly teenagers and, and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, I don't want to be a victim of that personally, because if it's, you know, going to make me feel like crap, the more time I spend on it, I'm going to spend less time on it. Um, it. It is an important avenue just because of the work I do to get it more distributed and more out there and read. Uh, so, you know, that's the only reason I really have a Twitter account at this point, you know, but it's not, um, you know, something I, I readily support in terms of, you know, social media. I would prefer that most people move their socialization offline into the into the real world right yes yes um, indeed mm -hmm. so so last week uh, musk seems to be uh committed to making twitter more democratic and he's putting out polls to control his his uh actions it seems so the first one was a Trump should be reintroduced. And it was relatively close, 52 to 40 percent and they and with most the 52 percent saying he should be so he was on ban. And after that, they did it with the people who have been previously banned if they should be readmitted. And it was more, much more overwhelming, 75% saying yes. And so he committed to this week as we're recording it to unban everyone unless they committed a crime uh, in, in what they were doing. So it seems like he's going to do this. And all the people who have been per, were, were taken off of Twitter because of posting truths are going to be put back in. Yeah, well, except for Alex Jones, right? So some of the big accounts like Trump, you mentioned, yeah. you know, there was like this offer of, uh, you know, let's democratically vote on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then should we, you know, remove the account bans in general and offer general amnesty? But there's specific people he's not allowing back on. And, you know, if you ask me, I'm not necessarily an Alex Jones fan, but, mm -hmm. you know, Donald Trump was president and involved, you know, when, when you're president, you know, you have blood on your hands if you're allowing drone bombings and all this other stuff to continue. So who's really more, uh, you know, responsible for more deaths, Trump or Alex Jones? And one's not allowed back on and there was no poll for him. Right. There was mm -hmm. only poll for the other. You know, so I think Elon Musk, um, <clears throat> you know, is is attempting to make it look a certain way. But I, I think there's obviously limits. Uh, to you know how free speech he's going to be. So you, right? you don't you you're believe at this point that it's you're still going to have a lot of the narrative and the biases that existed before he bought it. Uh, I think it's possible, but it might be a bias in the opposite direction. But you know, I I think honestly, um, a lot of people don't <clears throat> really understand why Elon Musk bought Twitter. So I think the narrative has been that he wanted, you know, it's been this idea that he wants to champion free speech. I don't think that's why personally no, no, Elon no. Musk bought Twitter. No. If you look at why he talked about buying Twitter, uh, the big giveaway is that he said he wants to turn Twitter into WeChat. 
right. uh, which is the Chinese uh, app that is the closest thing in existence, as far as I know, in, in use today, uh, that is, you know, the everything app. And so if you have heard that term thrown around, uh, that what the everything app essentially is, is the app through which the digital ID and CBDC agenda and all of that will be foisted on the or imposed on the public. Right. Because the everything app literally is everything. It's your digital ID tied to every service, government service and private sector service, your social media, your travel, your medical history. It's the everything app. Right. So this is basically what Elon Musk wants to turn Twitter into. So how do you do that? Well, I think Elon Musk savvily knows that if you have this idea of this is a bastion for free speech, uh, that he'll uh, be able to increase the amount of users on Twitter and the amount of time people spend on Twitter and the amount of data. This is the key point here, the amount of data being produced by people on Twitter. If you are looking at this new paradigm shift economically, where we're going from an oil-based economy to a data-based economy, data is the new oil, and you want to make the everything app the, whoever owns the everything app in this new system is going to be the king of the castle of the new economy. Mm-hmm. They're going to be the Rockefellers of the data age. Mm-hmm. So whoever controls and owns the everything app is going to have that position, essentially. So we're seeing different factions vie to be the everything app. Actually, FTX, which you mentioned a second ago, uh, mm-hmm. was vying itself to be the everything app. Oh, Sam okay. Bankman-Fried uh, had said that as well. So you have Elon Musk and Sam Bankman-Fried, and there's probably others, vying for their app to be the everything app. There's nothing good about that, right? No, but if no. I think what we're seeing right it is, now is an effort convenient- to sort of coax people back to Twitter yeah. um, and, you know, say whatever, you know, be able to perhaps engage more and, and get their work. You know, there might be some benefits to that. But ultimately, what Elon Musk is interested in is the data and getting more people on Twitter than before with the goal of turning it into WeChat, which is a segue to this yeah. everything app. And it's worth pointing out that the company behind WeChat, Tencent, is mm-hmm. uh, one of the most active advisors to Tesla and a major shareholder in Tesla. So there, I mean, there is a relationship there. Uh, you, you mentioned convenience before, but here's the same character we're holding out. It's going to be much more convenient for you. And, you know, it's the same strategy they've been using for decades, and especially from a health perspective with uh, respect to EMFs and you know, the deployment of radical Wi-Fi and cell phones that didn't exist pretty much last century. I mean, the technology was there, but it wasn't widely implemented at all, not until this century. And, you know, who doesn't like the convenience of being able to connect anywhere? But it comes at a cost biologically, and that cost is quite significant. And it's the same thing with to our our privacy and and how they're going to control us if we accept these conveniences. Yeah, absolutely. So the other side to look here when it comes to social media is the profiling. So Mm -hmm. I want people to keep in mind, too, that this whole war on domestic terror agenda, a lot of it is built off of data mining what you say on social media. This is true for Twitter. It's especially true for Facebook. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, the federal government is using software like Palantir, for example, to scrape data um, and they're use- they've used it already, actually, uh, to uh, engage in pre-crime arrests of people for things they've said on social media. This happened during January 6th. It actually happened before it started under Trump when William Barr was attorney general. He- Barr launched a program called DEEP which is an acronym for something I I don't remember uh, exactly. It's like something early engagement program. Um, but basically what it's about is pre-crime. 
and mm-hmm. normalizing that. And so around the same time, uh, they were pitching this agency in the Trump administration. It was coming from Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Um, this idea of creating what they were calling HARPA, which they were saying is DARPA for health. Yeah. And one of the um, architects of this is an ex guy at actual DARPA that ran one of their biotechnology offices. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Ling, I think. And also this uh, it was sort of masterminded by this guy named Bob Wright, who uh, was a a top executive at NBC Universal, uh, who had a close relationship with Trump because of The Apprentice, I believe. Um, Mm. So anyway, this flagship program of HARPA that Ivanka and Jared Kushner were promoting was called Safe Homes, which again is an acronym for something. And basically what that was going to do was data mine your social media post to uh, and then feed it to an AI algorithm that f- that decides if you show early neuropsychiatric warning signs that you may later engage in a violent crime. Okay, so that's obviously a recipe for pre-crime. And so this was sort of poo-pooed during the Trump administration, but uh, HARPA was actually made. Uh, It was made by the Biden administration, but it was called ARPA-H. And it's Mm -hmm. the same people that were pitching it via uh, Ivanka and Jared Kushner. But they they moved the H to the end with a hyphen. Uh, and now it's its own office, I believe, under HHS. Uh, the person in charge of it used to be in charge of the CIA's DARPA equivalent. Or she wasn't in charge. She was a top executive there called IARPA. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's currently, I think she was a top executive right before she moved into this position at a company called Ginkgo Bioworks, which is about making like synthetic life forms and biologics and is very, um, you know, very much in this space that we talked about a little bit earlier of the merging of big pharma, Silicon Valley and national security. She's very much from that space. And really ARPA H is the, um, the DARPA equivalent that's going to try and promote this and push it through. At the same time, by the way, the new head of the FDA is ex Google Health and is basically there to rubber stamp all of this stuff through the relatively non existent regulatory processes now, since, you know, they've been basically wiped out with COVID and that's been normalized. Um, I think that's why Robert Califf was put in charge of the FDA. It's part of this thing that dovetails with ARPA H. So, anyway, well, ARPA H was can't... framed by the Biden administration as being about wait, 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 wait. fighting you cancer. About... Oh, mm-hmm. you, you, you've talked about Caleb in the past. Can you remind us who he is? Uh, yeah. So he's he's the current head of the FDA. Um, I believe he also was either deputy FDA commissioner, had some sort of role in the FDA before, I believe, under Obama. But I'm not 100 percent sure on that. But what he was involved in most recently before his appointment to, to be in charge of the FDA was uh, the top guy at Google Health. And uh, Google Health is making all sorts of healthcare uh, deals with the national security state, most specifically the Pentagon, um, but also with groups like GlaxoSmithKline, uh, things like Galvani Bioelectronics, some of the stuff that Robert Califf used to be involved in. And the former head of Operation Warp Speed, Mansaf Salawi, was formerly in charge of that company as well. So you have a lot of these big actors, uh, you know, coming together in this particular space. And ARPA-H is the way for for this to get uh, rapidly pushed upon us all at some point, this particular agenda. And as I've talked about in my previous work, this is really an effort to frame uh, transhumanism, uh, or which is really the new eugenics as healthcare. And that's what a lot of this is about. But anyway, ARPA-H, 
has was framed by the Biden administration as beating cancer. I think that was done to distance itself from the proposal that was made in the Trump era about data mining social media. But that's always been part of ARPA-H. And I think it's very likely we'll see it resurrected. And it very much dovetails uh, with this domestic terror agenda, uh, which has been about, if you look at some of my past reporting on the origins of Facebook and the origins of Palantir, uh, for example, it has really always been the agenda. agenda. Both of those companies are direct provable outgrowths of a program that was uh, pitched after 9-11 called Total Information Awareness, which they later tried to change the terrorist information awareness after backlash. But basically what it was was a massive uh, surveillance program of the American public that was intended to do all sorts of stuff including uh, predict pandemics before they happen and also predict crime before it happens and predict terrorist attacks before it happens. And basically what it requires is mass surveillance of the most minute details of your life in order to make those predictions, which again are being you know run by, by AI, which is never 100% accurate. Yeah. They may tell you a particular number of accuracy, but oftentimes that's the company's metrics itself that they, that they use to sell sell their software. It's not independently tested. So it's likely much lower than what they say it is. And even some of the AI prediction software rolled out in COVID, like one of the ones that was rolled out in, in Rhode Island to predict COVID outbreaks before they uh, emerge, uh, had by their own metrics, by the company's own metrics, something like 76% accuracy. So if it's lower than 70, 76%, it's basically like flipping a coin. So you're having a pre-crime and also like pre-crime biosecurity sense of this too, right? Um, you know, apparatus being constructed and social media is part of this. Yeah. Uh, but the accuracy of whether you're going to be accused of a crime or uh, viewed as a, you know, uh, a health, a biosecurity threat or something like that is basically based on a coin flip at this point. And that's very unsettling. So I, I've been a strong advocate of technology for pretty much most of my adult life. And it, it comes with some good and bad, of course. And uh, it seems that the social media challenges you did previously described are largely related to technological advances we couldn't do last century. So I'm wondering if, uh, if there's any other technological advancements especially with AI, since that seems to be the new kid on the block. Uh, obviously, artificial general intelligence, AGI, has not been implemented yet. It will be. It's inevitable. It's just a matter of when. Uh, and there are s some programs like uh, GPT-3 that currently exist, and GPT-4 is coming out real, real quickly that seems to be a harbinger for AGI. It's pretty profoundly uh, impressive with what it can do. But I'm wondering if... if Things like GPT-4 or other programs that you're aware of from a technical perspective, especially with respect to AI or AGI, that they've got in the plans that they're going to be releasing that we should be know, we should know about. Um. So, as far as your question's concerned, so um, you know, a lot of talk has been said about the the total role of AI in our lives is going to mm -hmm. change once it reaches a particular point that a lot of these people refer to as the singularity, which is where AI intelligence is is going to allegedly uh, outpace human intelligence so extensively and so rapidly that it'll basically take over. Mm -hmm. So if you ask me, based on everything I've seen, mm -hmm. uh, okay. I don't think the singularity is actually possible or really? if it is possible, I think it's very far away. And right. I think if you are the people 
you know, people that are behind a lot are very involved with a lot of this agenda. People like Eric Schmidt and Henry mm-hmm. Kissinger that just put out their new Age of AI book, which has a lot about AI and its role in govern government. You know, and basically having AI become the government. Um, I think all you really need to do is convince people and have mainstream media parrot and the government simultaneously parrot that the singularity is here and people will believe mm. it and that it's so far superior to you uh, to uh, human uh. intelligence that we should uh, outsource uh, all our decision making to it. And then there's a Wizard of Oz type guy, probably Eric Schmidt and Kissinger and their associates uh, behind mm. the curtain who are making the decisions. So if you look at what Schmidt and Kissinger and these guys say about AI and government, they say stuff like, it's just going to be so far above our intelligence that there's no way for the AI to explain its decision making. It'll just be like, computer says this, computer says no. And if you're uh, basically organized crime running the government, which is, I would argue, the situation uh, today, and you don't want to have to explain to the little people the reasons for your policy, because it's a horrible reason that no one would agree with. Um, what a great curtain, what a great facade to have for your smart yeah. dictatorship. It's, it uh, seems like it would be the wet dream of technocrats. Yeah, I mean, they just have to say that it was the AI's decision. Then they have plausible yeah. deniability about everything, don't they? They're like, oh, it was a, the AI said it. It wasn't us. It was the AI, blah, blah, blah. Um, and a lot of the stuff they say in that context is is very unsettling. Stuff like AI uh, may decide to sacrifice, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of their own population to win if the, if the goal it's given is winning, uh, then... You know, it's willing to make all sorts of sacrifices that humans wouldn't make. But if you look at people like Kissinger and Eric Schmidt, I mean, they'd be very happy to kill a bunch of people and then blame it on AI for the decision. <laughs> you know they're, what I mean? They're already killing millions of chickens from the swan, this bird flu. Yeah, but they've killed millions of people all over the world. I know. You know know. what I mean? They don't care about killing millions of people, whether it's in the U.S. or somewhere else. They care about expanding their money and power infinitely. Yeah. Right. So how do you have plausible deniability about that and get away with like mass murder and eugenics programs and population control, a major theme of Kissinger's career historically? Right. How do you get away with that? You say there's this new super intelligence thing that's going to take over government because it's so superior and it's going to churn out policies and we're just going to follow them. Yeah. But what if those policies are really churned out by someone else, you know, and then they use AI as uh, oh, well, it's the new God, basically. So, you know, it's superior to us. So and it can't explain how it got to this conclusion because it thinks so differently from us. So we just have to follow what it says. Yeah, but that, we're not that, responsible for what it says at the same time. I think we're going to see efforts to do that and sort of convince people this new singularity has come and this whole like quasi religion dataism built around artificial intelligence and all of that that exists in some of these networks. A big proponent of dataism are people like Ray Kurzweil, you all know a Harari, who people in your audience are probably familiar with to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. But the singular, I mean, people like Ray Kurzweil said the singularity was going to happen a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen. Yeah. And if you look at programs like I've written about, like Welcome Leap, which is like the mm-hmm. Welcome Trust DARPA equivalent, mm-hmm. they're trying to map baby brains and child brains by forcing kids to use very invasive uh, biometric technology uh, to try and map a growing brain because they think that will create the singularity. That to me says they are grappling at straws. 
they have no way of producing something equivalent to the human brain. They can mimic stuff very successfully with AI and they have done so. Mm -hmm. But in Mm -hmm. terms of creating that like consciousness, uh, I don't think these, these are the most unconscious people on the entire planet trying to recreate consciousness in their image. Good luck, you know? And they obviously haven't been successful at doing it because why would you need programs, ambitious, well-funded programs like this at Welcome Leap, which are supposed to end in 2030, mm-hmm. thereabout, um, if the, you know, I think they're going to try and fake it. Well, that you have is to a- remember too, corporate America in, in, in Silicon Valley, super corrupt. So a lot of these guys mm-hmm. pitching these AI company, you know, AI stuff are also corrupt, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there, you know, you have a corrupt system creating corrupt products and there's all this cronyism and all of that stuff. You're not going to get a superior product in the current system we have when it comes to national security, state contracting and all that stuff. I mean, it's super, it's complete cronyism and has been for a long time. So if you're using a cronyous system, which produces an inferior product to create your superior AI and whatever, you're not going to get there. Well, I really appreciate your level-headed common sense uh, views on this because it's so easy to get propagandized, especially totally. if, you, if you have a technological bias like I do. So what you say makes a lot of sense and, and really, to me, forms the, forms the basis of a message of education that needs to be spread wide and far because it seems if they are able to convince a significant amount of the population that this AI is the new chief uh, in charge of everything, uh, we're we're headed for disaster that we even worse than we already totally. face. Well, so, I mean, we, knowing that they ago, can't okay. do it, mm-hmm. knowing they can't do it is is enormously reassuring. I don't think they can. Yeah, based on everything I've seen, I feel like I've looked at it pretty extensively. And if you yeah. look at what happened a few months ago, I think um, there was this effort of this ex Google engineer to basically say oh, sure. that the Google AI bot was sentient. I did a whole video about how that was an obvious psyop. And yeah. if you look at the chats and all that stuff that was supposed to prove sentient. He later admitted that it was heavily edited and all of this stuff. And this is part of what I would say, uh, you know, a a stepping stone to what I'm talking about to convince Mm -hmm. people that AI is, uh, well, first of all, I think this particular guy was trying to convince people that AI is, is sentient and is feeling and it loves humanity and it just wants the best for us. So, you know, there's a lot of different levels to the marketing to convince us to outsource, um, you know, all our decision making to a computer program designed by uh, the national security state and its contractors. And the <laughs> it's marketing, a horrible idea. I mean, market, if you look at well, what, 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 sorry, what was that? I was going to say the marketing they're doing is is exponentially more effective than it was last century because they have all the benefit of the data gathering surveillance they've been doing for the last two decades. Yeah, but think about all the data they've sucked up, even just since post 9-11, when a lot of these surveillance mm-hmm. programs got out of control. Think mm-hmm. of how much data they're, they're having these AIs swim in. Mm-hmm. And they think, oh, well, we can't trigger the singularity with this level of data we've already accumulated. So now we have to get people using more devices or implantable devices or wearable devices. And then we'll, we'll hit that sweet spot. I don't think it's going to happen, personally. Um, but I think they're desperate to try and make it happen. And if they can't make it happen, they're going to psyop us into making think it, it happen. Wow. Um, but I'll just, you know, give people a word of warning here. Um, yes, I think they're going to try and market it really well. And I think to some people they have marketed it already very mm-hmm. successfully, but when you outsource major aspects of your life to someone else, it's not good. Look at what's happened to the American people as we've outsourced our food supply to corporations. 
Has that made you healthier? Has that made your communities <laughs> better off? Uh, no, those corporations we outsource everything to are trying to enslave us right now using the same sort of psyop. It's more convenient for you to outsource uh, everything to AI. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a stepping stone towards the same method of control ultimately, but much more invasive and one that actually threatens the existence of the entire species and arguably the natural world as well. So it's definitely here where we should, where we should uh, be drawing the line to say, to say the very least. Well, I wasn't expecting that uh, response, but it's incredibly reassuring to have that perspective uh, and empowering at the same time. Well, here, here's the other thing too, this whole inevitability, inevitability of AI mm-hmm. Narrative is a major marketing narrative necessary to get transhumanist technologies widely adopted. Mm -hmm. Going back to Elon Musk, look at his narrative and Mm -hmm. why he has a company like Neuralink, the brain chip. Oh, well, super intelligent AI is inevitable. And when it comes, it will take over the world. And the only way to compete is for us to become transhumanists. Increase our bandwidth. Yeah. Yeah. And if you realize that the super intelligent singularity stuff is most likely a psyop, this is using fear of that, you know, uh, narrative to get you into the transhumanist box that you're not going to get out of. Once you get a brain chip, there's no going back. And it was, well, I, I personally don't think having some superficial understanding of biology that it's technologically possible in our lifetime. It's just, too complex. I mean, there, it'll probably potentially happen, but not in our lifetime. Certainly, you know, and with the resolution they need to do, there's yeah, so many. But if if you're going to outsource your brain to a corporation, you're not you anymore. You know what I mean? Um, you know, if you're going to allow a, a company to put something in your brain and like allow things to be read and written onto your brain. Uh, well, speaking speaking of that, there's another tangent that. Uh, Many people believe in, and uh, spread in our community with respect to what they're doing with the jabs and in, inserting chips or graphing, graphing that can serve as some type of communication device. And I'm sure you've looked at that, and I'm wondering what conclusions you've reached. Yeah, so the the I only was familiar with the graphene oxide first study that was allegedly from the mm-hmm. University of Almeria or something mm-hmm. like that in Spain. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it was falsely promoted. I I would encourage people to go read the study itself. It's translated into English, I believe, at this point. And Mm -hmm. it says very clearly there in the study itself that there's no conclusive evidence. It was an observational study of a few uh, microscope slides. I didn't find it very convincing. And the guy said in there that it it would require further study to uh, rule out uh, or uh, definitively say one way or the other, but the, the person that commissioned that study, uh, who's a, a Spaniard named uh, Ricardo Delgado, uh, he was going around saying that this showed that the vaccine is 99% graphene oxide using that particular study, which had inconclusive findings as evidence. Um, and I think he just wanted to assume that people want to go and read the study. So people have claimed there's further studies that have been done. I have not personally seen them. Uh, myself, but that particular first study was not convincing. If you ask me uh, what the purpose of the COVID vaccine jabs was in terms of its connection to this agenda uh, we're talking about, I don't think it was even really necessary for them to have any sort of nanotechnology or anything like that hidden in it. I think the big uh, boon for these interests 
uh, in that regard with how the COVID, vac uh, COVID vaccines were handled is that it basically uh, eliminated normal regulatory approval for vaccines and got mRNA vaccines through the door, which once you open that box is a door to not just normalizing mRNA injections, but normalizing CRISPR and all other sorts of this gene editing, uh, brave new world of medicine in general, which includes yeah. nanotechnology and, and other stuff as well. But now they've redefined vaccine to include things that aren't actually vaccines and that do involve injecting foreign genetic material that can uh, affect and change your genetic material upon injection. And there's things like DNA vaccines and all of this stuff. This is why I worry so much about this WHO treaty, uh, because once it has, you know, supreme authority, uh, they can just say, well, this time we need a DNA vaccine or this time in order uh, to stop the pandemic. Uh, you need a, you need to undergo CRISPR treatment and all of this stuff. You know, it's sort of opening the door uh, there and normalizing a lot of this technology, sort of um, equating this technology with, you know, vaccines of yesteryear. I, I And, you know, I don't think the stuff here in this particular scenario needed to have any of that nanotechnology or whatever in it. I think it was a stepping stone towards that agenda, but I don't think they went necessarily as far this time around uh, as they could in the future. Well, the, the I would agree with you, but and that the fact that these vaccines were introduced with essentially no testing, little to no testing, and all of the uh, liability was essentially eliminated under the, the pretext of emergency use of an emergency that has been extended for years now. Yeah, and they've normalized that behavior now. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's yeah. going to. It seems to me it's going to be the pretext or the the template they're going to use to introduce future drugs because introducing a drug yes. now costs billions of dollars and there's a li massive liability associated with it. Let's go with the vaccine. We can spin up these MRNAs for hundreds of different diseases and that's exactly. the new drug. And it's going to charge a lot more for it. I mean, just look what, look what Pfizer did after the, uh, understanding the at some point they're going to the compliance had decreased. So they, they increased the rate of the charge for that vaccine by 400%. Thirty dollars and one hundred twenty, because they yeah. had to keep they had to keep their same uh, uh, numbers. <laughs> they had to keep the numbers up. They yeah. they couldn't make less than a hundred billion a year. <laughs> yeah. So what 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 has happened as a result of how the COVID nineteen vaccine approval situation was mismanaged or, or was mismanaged um, is is that now uh, like with Moderna before COVID-19, they couldn't get anything taken to market or even approved for human trials because they couldn't get past animal trials. So now the situation has changed where if you can declare emergency youth author author authorization for something, um, you can get products that are killing animals and can't even make it to human trials straight to the market to be injected into people from the off. Yeah. And a lot of these untested, you know, transhumanist ish technologies that are being framed as for use in healthcare. Um, that's how they're all going to get pushed through, if you ask me. And that's why it's no coincidence, in my opinion, that someone like Robert Califf is the guy that's now in charge of the FDA. He is there to rubber stamp all of that stuff and push it all through. Um, and this is very bad. But I mean, think about the US right now. Isn't there like a national emergency declared not just for COVID, but for monkeypox? How many people are dying from monkeypox in the U.S. right now? But in theory, under the, the declaration it has, if I'm not mistaken, they could declare uh, emergency youth authorization for something to treat monkeypox if they wanted to, even though no one's dying from it. And then it goes straight on the market. That's right. 
What if they they finally acknowledge there's a crisis of heart conditions and myocarditis, and then there's some you know CRISPR technology that magically comes on the market that's going to heal your heart and return you to pre myocarditis, return it to a pre myocarditis state. And because it's a national emergency, the flood of myocarditis cases, then it goes straight to market. And how many people are going to try that because they want to have a healthy heart again? or think that we'll give it to them. I mean, it's not hard for them to do this now because of all the precedents uh, that they have set during COVID-19. So once you have this whole can of wormed opens, uh, all the nanotechnology stuff, I mean, it's it's opened the floodgates. We're in this lull right now, as you mentioned earlier, sort of the eye of the storm before they start pushing this stuff massively again. Yeah. Well, you know, what was amazing is that even with the bivalent stuff, Paul right. Offitz uh, totally was against it. And he was propped up all during COVID as, look, he's calling the mRNA stuff the greatest accomplishment of during his lifetime and all this stuff. And then he starts criticizing the bivalent one and they're like, we're not going to talk about him anymore. Yeah, just (laughs) he finally got a glimpse of consciousness, I guess. I I sued Offit in the past uh because he yeah well hopefully he'll figure out that things aren't what they seem i mean if he started criticizing the covid vaccines now that is a real turning point i think even for establishment people that are you know sort of propagandized by this stuff but not acting necessarily in bad faith you know if paul offitz is getting off the bandwagon i think a lot of those guys are and if they try and push through another biosecurity thing like covid um within the decade we'll see how many of them go along with it because you know a lot of these people in their mind they think these type of events are once every 100 years right <laughs> well that's how it was framed with covid right they're like oh the last time this happened was the spanish flu pandemic of like 1918 or whatever so if you're going to have one happen every like three years that's not that's, normal what's your projection projection or best guess as to when we're going to come out of this eye of the storm. Is it, you think it's going to be next year? I mean, you mentioned the, C, the CBDCs, and I agree, 23, 24 is likely implementation, but there's going to be some false flag that they're going to re- resurrect. Yeah, but I mean, it's really hard to put dates on this stuff, right? Like, I've tried to do it in the past, but, well, you know, you have to understand that, like, these people also, you know, are constantly trying to evaluate the situation and mm-hmm. that they change their metrics and, and tweak their plans based on what's what's happening in the real world and how much pushback there is and all of this stuff um so i you know it's it's very complicated to predict but i think it's very clear to see that sometime before 2025 at least there's going to be another another major shoe to drop which is it i mean we have different agendas that they need some sort of uh, false flag or some sort of event to sort of force through whether it's the war on domestic terror the biosecurity agenda i mean there's numerous other things yeah, the food, the food. Yeah. But I mean, you, this type of stuff, food shortage, energy shortage is being used to bring in a lot of these um, uh, ch- major changes to the food supply and the economic supply. So, I mean, they're all interrelated. The question is, which uh, agenda do they think they can push farther on for now? Um, and then, you know, I think they're hopping around, you know food and energy they'll go back to biosecurity at some point they'll do this war on dissent domestic terror stuff i think they're going to hop around um but and i don't really know which one they're going to hit next yeah um but i think a lot of it too what they decide to do and how far they decide to go depends on pushback they are really worried about their house of cards falling down and it'll happen at some point the question is how much damage will they do in the interim how much damage will we let them do 
uh, in the interim is a is a better question because a lot of this stuff I don't think they can get away with. You know, part of it's because the technology isn't where they say it is. Even uh, there's certain thresholds that they claim. Well, you know, like the AI singularity stuff, they want to be met, but they can't necessarily meet it. And it's a very small amount of people trying to control billions of people. And also trying to depopulate a lot of people. And eventually, you know, it's an unsustainable situation. Um, So I don't know. I think a lot of what happens in the future depends on continued efforts to push back how uh, successfully people build and adopt parallel systems. Uh, So the story here isn't written yet. And so I think the more desperate the elites and the powers that be become, the more erratic these types of events will be in terms of false flags and things of that nature. Um, I think we'll, we'll see you know, desperate acts coming from them, uh, the more people reject their their designs and, and their agenda. So I think at this particular stage of the game, it's very hard to predict. But I think what is, you know, fair to say is that if you look at the gradual implementation of these types of agendas over the past century or so, developments that used to take decades are now taking years or even months. Mm-hmm. at this stage of the game and and you know they've made it cr- pretty clear uh with agenda 2030 and the, the the repetition of the year 2030 that they plan to have a lot of this stuff pretty much locked down by that time so i think yeah we're going to be living a very turbulent decade but it's the decade where we draw the line in the sand and we uh stop having organized crime run the shell <laughs> <laughs> so uh, w- and you're you're somewhat insulated to this because you you live in Chile, but but if I don't say I wouldn't say I'm insulated. It's everywhere. This is a global agenda. The biosecurity stuff was arguably worst here during COVID nineteen in terms of lockdowns than it was in the vast majority of the United States. Um, the you know the Green New Deal, you know sustainable development goals. That's something that's going on in really every country of the world. There is a global power grab underway. I'd like to think I'm insulated, but I don't think that's. Uh, necessarily so, true. From your perspective, what is the way to become relatively insulated? It would seem the rec- earlier recommendations of developing and plug or and or plugging into a community where you can improve your resilience. Definitely. Yeah, and, it's all about community building. I think yeah. at this point, it seems that's it, the core. That is absolutely the core. Yeah, whether you're you're in the U.S or Chile, or wherever you are, if you don't have people around you to rely on when things get tough or when things they get will. bad, you're going to be looking to the government and the CBDCs and all of this stuff. And that's the plan. The plan mm-hmm. is for them to basically collapse the existing uh, systems and have people going, clamoring to government for solutions. And then the solutions they're going to offer are digital IDs, CBDCs, all this technocratic stuff. Um, and you'll be forced to adopt it because you won't be given an alternative. The only way to have an alternative to that system is to build it yourself. And, uh, you know, you can't build it just you and your family really and expect to be fully resilient. You know, maybe some people for, uh, in particular situations don't really have any choice. They live in a really rural area and no one's around, you know, whatever, you know, it's, it's a very, what kind of system you build and what kind of community you build is very particular to where you are and what your means are to do that. But it's very important right now to find like-minded people who in a time of crisis will be there to support you. You'll be there to support each other. And would you agree with the comment that it's uh, highly unlikely that you're going to build this community in a very densely populated urban area because those are the worst centers that are going to be hit. If you live in the middle of Manhattan or another yeah, get out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems. I mean, th- that's got to be number one priority is move. 
Yeah, I definitely would look at going to a more rural area than a metropolis. I mean, remember that a lot of, you know, basically the concentration camps of the future are going to be smart cities, Mm -hmm. right? So smart cities are going to be built in places that are already very highly urbanized. Uh, Pretty much every metropolis in the world has some sort of plan to convert it to a smart city that's already being enacted or on the books to be enacted, right? So, yeah, if you don't want to be part of that, you should move because it will be built around you if you are in one of those cities. Sure. Yeah. So and you don't have land to actually grow food or raise chickens, which I think is probably one of the best strategies you can do, especially if you develop bartering, because, you know, fresh chicken eggs. I mean, even now, I think the prices have doubled since since this craziness has started. So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, there's a lot you can do. So like, even if you don't have the money to buy land, you can find a, a rural community of like-minded people and you can rent a house with a yard mm-hmm. uh, in, in parts of the country. And I'm sure you're, if you find the right land, you know, landlord or landlady, they'll let you garden and grow there. Um, but, you know, it, it takes research and in and re- personal responsibility on our part to to try and make uh, those steps. Uh, in urban areas, it's going to be really hard when push comes to shove. I know there are people that have done a lot in the urban gardening space and like even, you know, having like chicken coops and like an urban setting and all of that stuff. And, you know, that's commendable. But I think when you consider all the other factors at play here, um, it's best to not be in the heart of a major urban area when all this stuff goes down to say the very least. Um, And also what I would encourage people to do too, like even if you feel like you don't have capital at all to even Mm -hmm. move anywhere, uh, the least you can do is spend some of your time on the internet researching how to grow your own food, how to keep chickens, all of that stuff. It's like on YouTube, it's free. Start building your knowledge base. And then you have skills that in the time of a crisis and you have to get out of the city uh, because there's no other choice or whatever, you have skills that you can market to people in a smaller community if you have to leave. And that is very valuable skill set. You can develop it you know, a knowledge base by just watching YouTube videos. Um, you don't have to necessarily spend money uh, to w- take those steps to becoming independent. You can start that way, you know? So there's some, there's stuff literally anyone can do no matter what your economic situation is. So that's some very sage advice. Would you, what would be the top three to five? I mean, you could, and certainly reviewing the ones that we already did, if, if you could give people advice now, I mean, if we look back on this, we've got, you know, we were warning people about not taking the jab well before it was came out, and we and we observed all the complications that resulted from that. So, th- this this dystopia is inevitable. There, there, it's coming. It, it, we it, it doesn't. We can insulate ourselves from it, and, but if you don't prepare yourself, it's going to be really a problem. So, what would you suggest as the top three, four, or five things to do? Communities would that be number one? I would think. Yeah. Find a community of like-minded people wherever you are. If you're like-minded communities in the city, try and pool your resources together and buy land somewhere else and get out or something like that. But Mm -hmm. definitely find like-minded people and create a community. doesn't matter where you are, what your means are. Uh, Find find your people. And then from there, you have to start looking at the parallel systems. Um, I definitely think it's good uh, when you're looking at this food and energy crunch stuff. If there's even things, you small things you can buy, a small food store for even of like, I don't know, rice and beans for like three months or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. uh, things that are on sort of a smaller scale. You don't have to go into a whole homestead necessarily uh, right away. You can start small. 
and build off in that. But everything, you know, especially if you're looking at this economic crisis and the potential, the potential of them basically collapsing the economy to introduce CBDCs, your money isn't necessarily safe in the bank anymore, right? But the more money you invest in things you actually can use in the time of crisis or that you can use to support your family, crisis or not, uh, like food or something that you can use to sort of power your home off the grid, even on a small scale or power a few devices or something like that. All of those are worthy investments, particularly like water, water filters. All of those are, are good ideas. You know, you have to sort of uh, see what 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 works for you. But, you know, community is the core of this because from that comes the parallel systems. Um, if you're looking to have some sort of economic activity at all that involves trading uh, services or goods with, with another group or another person. And so you need a community to do that. Right. Mm, so you sort of have to start there and, and expand out. And then again, you know, build your knowledge base. If you have never looked in or you've never kept a garden or anything like that, I mean, you can start learning the basics from the internet while it's still relatively free and available. They're not really censoring, you know, you know, yeah. agriculturalist yeah. YouTube yet. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, another good resource too, is to um, there's lots of services that you can buy. And some of them are free. I even think where you can download YouTube videos and store them offline. Um, and a lot, so the effort to censor the internet is uh, is going to pick up and it's going to get much worse than it is right now. So if there's any <laughs> information, whether it's about resilience homesteading or, you know, about, you know, power structures, the news, what's gone on over the past few years, history in general, the more stuff you save offline, the better uh, chance that you will have of accessing it when the internet is cut off, right? Because they're basically, the agenda is on the books to cut your internet access unless you buy into the digital ID. Because, you know, it's not just like, there isn't just this effort to tie your digital ID to your social media accounts or require digital ID to access social media. It's going to be for internet access in general. Right. Well, even so, now it's, it's severely censored. I mean, obviously we know that just sure. not only from removing people that are against the narrative off the, off the site, but off the, off the search engine. This is the point I wanted to bring up is that they, they really can't, well, I guess they could technically through some nefarious means remove your, the sites that are, have this information. But there's billions of sites out there that have this information. And there's no way, unless you know that URL or the where to find it, that it will be available to, to, to 99.9999% of people. You have to, that we people find information is through the search engines. And Google uh, controls 95% of the search engines globe in the world, the entire world, 95% of the search searches come through Google. So, yeah. you know, and, and I'm sure we've all typed in keywords in there. And we, we see the number of results. There might be millions, there might be billions of results, but have you ever recently <laughs> tried to dig down and go to search page one, number 100? I don't know if you've done that recently, but when I tried to do it, it stops at five or six. That's it. You, yeah. There's no more access to any other information, no matter how deep you want to dive and research it. You just can't get it. Yeah. It's unavailable. Yeah. So my point here is then since that is only getting worse with time and a lot of these pages, you know, there's been major attacks on your website, right? Which is, yeah, you know, for yeah. years, well, not just for me, but for many other people have been a resource for like natural yeah. cures and stuff like that. You know, that stuff will start to disappear more and more over the coming years. If you want that information, either buy it in like the form of books or download videos, articles, whatever, 
uh, offline, store it offline on external hard drives or however you need to, but make sure you have the information you want to be able to access in the event there's no internet anymore. Um, you should store that offline. What's the strategy you're using personally? Uh, well, I personally download it all and put it on external hard drives personally. Hard drives. Okay. Uh, but I'm sure there's other ways of doing it. it. I want it stored in the cloud though. <laughs> Cause again, that's tied to, uh, internet access and almost all cloud companies are CIA front companies or they're, uh, you know, contractors to. I, I would, I would so. suggest one caution with the external hard drive approach. It's good. Uh, but I would put them in a little Faraday bag. In case, in yeah. I have, for, I have those for, as well. For, uh, they're not that expensive. Yeah, electromagnetic pulses can destroy your hard drives for sure. And then all that hard work is down the drain. Yeah. So, well, this is this that was really one of the, the major things I wanted to talk about. It was surprisingly brief and not as important as the other topics you brought up. Uh, but it is just that you know, James Corbett, who I'm sure you're familiar with, I think you've interviewed. Of course. Him. Yeah, he he's he's done some really good work on this and referring to the internet as the, the or correlating it to the Library of Alexandria and how they burned yes. it. Yes, to be doing it now, but and, it, and it's so obvious. I mean, they literally you just can't access it. So you, now is the time to find it, especially on these preparedness uh, topics that are going to be really crucial to survive mm-hmm. in the coming survive and thrive if, if yeah. you're prepared. If you're so what a lot of these people are counting on is that the knowledge that previous generations had, we have forgotten, partially mm-hmm. because we have outsourced so much of our daily needs to the corporations. Yeah. Yes, it is. So many people don't know how to grow food anymore. And anything that you think of as like basic needs, uh, shelter, clothes, food, it's all outsourced. Very few people in the U.S. know anymore how to produce uh, how to build their own buildings, their own structures, how to produce and grow or uh, grow their own food, how to, uh, you know, sew and, and create their own clothing uh, or knit or things like that. Um, but all of those, you know, the how to get the knowledge of those skills still exists online. It's a very mm-hmm. good idea to back that up and have it. Cause even if you, I don't know, like for example, you, winter's coming and you want to learn how to knit or something. And you, you knew how you invested time in, in growing food and all this other stuff, but you didn't think about clothes or something. And then you're like, Oh, I wish I could go to YouTube and like, look at knitting tutorials or something. You know <laughs> uh, it's a good idea to try and have that knowledge base somewhere, or at least like when you set up a community, have someone in the community or everyone in the community picks a different topic and backs up stuff on that or, or, some, the, or something or like the that. Skill, depending on size, size yeah. Of or something like that. But it's always good to have, you know, some sort of backing up of knowledge in case something happens to that person or something like that. Like the knowledge sure. doesn't die because so they want that people, knowledge to die. Cause then we're dependent sure. on them and, you know, we can't take care of ourselves without them being involved in the equation. And we have to get away from that. And a lot of that requires us relearning uh, the traditional skills that have kept humans around for thousands of years. So in, have you identified any books that are particularly good at preparedness that you would recommend? Uh, I mean, yeah, but I'd have to go uh, okay. look because like, you know, a lot of the ones I have, I've saved offline, but there's a lot of, um, oh man. Uh, or websites or, you know, that because there's a lot of people, I, I haven't done this work specifically, so but I know that pe- other people have. There's some good resources out, out there. I, I personally don't know what they are, but I'm sure... Some people do. 
Well, I guess, I mean, there is a good book that sort of gives you an introduction to all sorts of kind of skills. It's called Back to Basics. It's sort of like Mm -hmm. an encyclopedia of traditional skills. It sort Mm -hmm. of is an introduction to the basic stuff. Because when you're talking about things like, you know, homesteading, it's Mm -hmm. not just growing and producing your own food or tending chickens or whatever. You also have to think about things like preserving the harvest for winter, canning and all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it has like primers on that, primers on, uh, you know, make goods on um on how to choose a site for a homestead and like a lot of traditional knowledge is sort of stored in one book about all sorts of different topics um but i mean it really depends on what you want to specialize in you know i mean there, there's tons of books on this stuff and you can still get them for relatively cheap if you buy them used they're even cheaper mm-hmm. and you can get a ton of them and really everything you have in, in a physical sense is even better than having it on external hard drives. Like I'm more limited because I live in South America. So if I want like English language books, um, it <laughs> gets pretty expensive pretty yeah. quickly unless I want to have them in electronic format. But like if you're in the U.S., like it's very easy to get used books on this topic and very cheap. And you can amass a library on this stuff for not much money. And it's definitely worth the investment. Well, that is pretty solid recommendation, solid strategy. I'm glad to include that as one of your top recommendations to be prepared. So, wow, this is great. Do you have any other insights you'd like to share today? Um, well, I mean, you wanted to talk about censorship a lot, and I don't know if you feel like we we touched enough uh, on that. Oh, sure, I yeah. Only really spoke no, about we- it in general terms, but I mean, for people need well, to realize that it's going to get a lot worse. And mm-hmm. you, I sort of didn't drive this home earlier, but I did sort of bring it up. You are being profiled based on what you post and like and share on social media. If you wish to continue using your social media profiles in the current paradigm, it would make sense to not engage with much uh, as many posts uh, just because they're using that against you to profile you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say if you're going to try and organize stuff, particularly with communities, uh, try and do as much of it offline as you can or try be very and be very careful about what platforms you do that. With respect to platforms, I'm wondering what your views are in Signal. I know they I've read the Surveillance Valley book and uh, they I believe the CIA has a backdoor to it, but it seems to be the best encrypted one. Or do you just not even recommend something like Signal? Well, I would say at this point, I don't really recommend any specific platform because, you know, I think at this point they can backdoor anything they really want. And I don't really have any illusions about 100% privacy with anything at this point, uh, which is why I say I think offline is the best thing you can do. Okay. Uh, when it comes to, you know, different stuff like that. Yeah. I think, you know, signals better than WhatsApp. That's for sure. WhatsApp's owned by Facebook. Right. Um, (laughs) So at least Signal's trying to say they're not tied to anybody, but like, as you pointed out, Yasha Levine in Surveillance Valley and some other people have pointed out that they probably are. Um, it, it's, it's, again, it's really hard to know because a lot, they, they've tried to hide a lot of, you know, when they have a particular company that, uh, that they want people to widely adopt and they know that like it's bad optics for them in terms of adoption to have a direct national security state connection, they'll try and hide it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, sometimes it's come out like a wicker, for example, was being promoted by some people uh, before it was bought by Amazon. And it turns out it was largely funded by the CIA through NQTEL and stuff, mm-hmm. even though it was an encrypted messaging platform. So, I mean, it's definitely important to do your homework, but if there's something like 
if things get really bad and the war on domestic terror gets underway and there's all this profiling and whatever, you know, going on, I would just stay as far away from the online world as you can. But that that's just me, you know, personally. I think there's, you know, some platforms that people prefer and obviously encrypted is better than unencrypted, but I just, I don't think it's safe to really assume anymore that they can't get into your stuff. And, you know, as someone that does the kind of work I do, that's why I don't work with like whistleblowers or people like that. I can't guarantee their safety, mm-hmm. right? Because I don't have any of those illusions of privacy and I don't want to, you know, put someone's put someone at risk because I can't guarantee that stuff. Have you been tempted to use whistleblowers in the past? Um, I, I just, I try and do stuff that's just out in the open, okay. uh, open source intelligence, right? So, mm-hmm. cause then it's publicly verifiable and people can go and see it for them for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I, I kind of avoid it. I also worry too, that in the past, like some whistleblowers that have been put out in front of us, may have been, you know, not necessarily whistleblowers. They may have been put out there to see a particular narrative about something. What do you think right. it might be true for Snowden? I mean, is it, uh, I Levine implies that in his book. I, I regard the whole Snowden creation of the intercept by Pierre Omidyar and, mm-hmm. and then the privatization of more than 90% of the Snowden leaks uh, with great skepticism. I'll just leave it at that um, because, you know, uh, very, very few of the documents that he uh, was allegedly trying to get out in the open were actually revealed publicly. And if you look at the funding uh, of The Intercept and, you know, Pierre Omidyar, who's the owner of PayPal, uh, his and which censors people for misinformation. Uh, Not by only taking, censors, takes their money. Illegally. Oh, yeah, it takes their money. Just, just yeah, he has even even from the time the intercept was founded, lots of conflicts of interest with the national security state, and then uh, the intercept basically privatizes the Snowden leaks, and uh, more than ninety percent of it is never made public. What was in that ninety percent that was never made public? Why was it never made public? Um, right. I don't know. So it's it's complicated it's a very, it's a, stuff. It's a very compelling <laughs> person, though. They picked a really good good candidate for that. He's actually strongly promotes Signal too. Yeah, so you know that's. I think Yasha Levine's criticisms of that whole situation should definitely be considered. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think the other guy in that space was uh, Mark Ames did a lot of really mm-hmm. good early reporting on the Intercept when it was founded and what he I think rightly characterizes as the privatization of the Snowden leaks. Um, you know, it's an unfortunate situation to say the very least and i don't it's i'm a big fan of glenn greenwald and you know he's one of the other top investigative journalists like yourself and it seems like he is not part of that cabal seems to be uh, appreciate his his insights and his takes on things i haven't seen well i would i would so i did a lot of reporting Mm -hmm. on the intercept when glenn greenwald was still there and the snowden the handling Mm -hmm. of the snowden leaks and things like that um, and my takeaways then were not positive for the intercept and Glenn Greenwald was not happy about my analysis. I'll just say yeah. that for people that are interested in seeing our previous Twitter altercations, <laughs> I think he's deleted some of his tweets, but they're still around, uh, a lot of them. And, um, a lot of my criticisms at that point, when he left the intercept, he later confirmed as true, but previously said I belonged in a mental hospital. So no, he said that about you. 
I'd rather not uh, revive wow. the okay, 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 disagreements okay. that Greenwald and I have had before, but he was very sensitive about a lot of these claims about Pierre Amidiar and the Intercept when he worked there. Uh, now he's not, but, yeah. you know, I, uh, you he know, woke up. He woke up. I don't really have rose tinted glasses with Glenn Greenwald anymore. <laughs> well, thank you for those insights. Um, all right. You want to continue on any, any other elements that you'd like to comment on with the censorship? Uh, I mean, not unless there's anything that I, I brought oh, no. up uh, or that I didn't bring up that you'd like me to go into. I think uh, we've given people a lot right. to chew on today. Yeah, we have. I really deeply appreciate it. So as an update, are you working on part three of One Nation Under Blackmail or what is your next project? <laughs> uh, yeah, so the whole FTX situation, some people have joked, oh, look, here's volume three of One Nation Under Blackmail <laughs> uh, for you. <laughs> Um, And so I am doing um, an investigation on the FTX situation right now, just an aspect of it that'll be coming out in the next week or two uh, that I think will be quite revelatory about certain aspects of what was really going on there. Um, But, you know, I need to take time away before writing another 500 page book. (laughs) I I wrote a thousand pages, which are new to 500 page roughly uh, books. That was a lot of work. And I was also producing a lot of other, you know, investigations and reports at the same time. Uh, I also have two kids, so I have to make time for them too. You know, it's about to be the holidays. I have two kid birthdays in December too. It's going to be pretty crazy. So I probably won't be doing another book straight away, but I mean, there's a lot more that came up, particularly as I was writing volume two that definitely need further development, uh, whether that takes the form of like an investigative series or its own book. Uh, I don't really know. We'll see. But I am doing stuff on FTX. I have an investigative series that I'm co-writing with Ian Davis, who is uh, very good at what he does uh, on the sustainable development goals. And we're doing each goal. Uh, point by point showing the agenda that's sort of under the hood there because of course they they can you know sort of veil it in very flowery terms and how could you be opposed to this but if you look at the organizations really they're all public private partnerships between the UN and other groups that are actually going to be designing the policies and implementing uh, the stuff under the guise of the nice sounding sustainable development goal um, you know there's a lot of very nefarious stuff taking place that needs to be looked at so that's what uh we'll probably right. be doing over the next couple of months or so. All right. So folks, if you want to get a taste of that, then you need to go to sign up for her newsletter and go to her website on unlimited hangout. I personally do an RSS feed because that's the way I like to get my mm-hmm. information delivered to me. So uh, I can't recommend, couldn't recommend her site more strongly. It is just, she's just the most amazing investigator. And it's always coming up with surprises and she shared such great information with us today. So, uh, and uh yeah, so you keep up the great work and take a well-deserved rest. You you, <laughs> you certainly deserve it. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. You-